The following recording is a presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Rohnert Park, California, and of Pastor Val Mark Smith. We are an independent Baptist congregation committed to the accurate presentation of the historical doctrines of the faith. We welcome your visit to our services anytime here in the Rohnert Park area. I'd like you to take your Bibles now, if you would, and open them to 1 Timothy chapter 3. I was going over my notes for the sermon this afternoon, and I realized uh, that I had not left a place for the actual reading of this text. Uh, we've read it before, but and there are a reference that I'll make to it, but I realized I just hadn't actually put a place in here uh, to read it, and I don't want to be accused of coming into the pulpit and not reading the Word of God to you. Uh, about, uh, I think it was a couple, three years ago, I think it was the, uh, I believe it was uh, the Christmas, one of the Christmas Eve celebrations that we have. As you know, when we have that, that's, we have all the lights turned out except the perimeter lights, and it's kind of dark in here. We do have these on, but <clears throat> with, the, with the setup, that it's, it's hard to read, uh, you know, from the, from the actual Bible uh, when you're up here with that. It's just the difference in the lighting and so forth, and so... This particular night, on that night, I came up here to the pulpit, and all I had, I had the scriptures that I wanted to read, but I had them on the iPad so I could see them. And uh, Larry Jefferson climbed all over me because I didn't have a Bible when I came into the pulpit. So I said, I'm not going to do that any longer. <clears throat> so we're going to read this scripture. I hadn't left room for it. We're going to read it, though. So let's read First uh, Timothy chapter 3, beginning in verse number 1. This is a true saying. If a man desire the office of a bishop, he desireth a good work. A bishop, then, must be blameless, the husband of one wife, vigilant, sober, of good behavior, given to hospitality, apt to teach, not given to wine, no striker, not greedy, of filthy lucre, but patient, not a brawler, not covetous, one that ruleth well his own house, having his children in subjection with all gravity, for if a man know not how to rule his own house, how shall he take care of the church of God? Not a novice, lest being lifted up with pride, he fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must have a good report of them which are without, lest he fall into reproach and the snare of the devil. Now tonight we continue our study of the last letter of the Baptist acrostic, and that letter is T which stands for two offices in the church. Those offices are pastors and deacons, and um, that is mandated by the Scriptures, that we have pastors and deacons to uh, rule in our church. Now, the letters of the acrostic, as we all know, or should know, stand against a graded hierarchical form of church government, such as you find in the Roman Catholic Church. Uh, the church is not to be ruled by an elaborate system of prelates because we can't find a, a command in the Scriptures for that. There is no precedent set in the Word of God for that kind of a church structure. And then we also remember that the Baptist acrostic is given mostly to emphasize the difference between Baptist and the world's largest body of nominal Christians, which is the Roman Catholic Church. And at every... Uh, juncture here at every doctrine that each of these letters represents we stand opposed to roman catholic doctrine who takes nearly the opposite position of the of the ones that we believe to be true 
So we look down through the list of these things, and I'll just run those, uh, run those over again because it's been a little bit of while, a little while since we actually did the whole list. But being a bap- in Baptist stands for biblical authority. That Baptists, Baptists believe that uh, there is a singular authority for our faith and our practice, and that is the Bible. A is the autonomy of the local church, that each church makes its own decisions, and it doesn't recognize any outside authority. P is the priesthood of the believer, that every Christian has access to God without the uh, necessity of human mediation. T, that is the first T in the cross, stands for two ordinances in the church, which are baptism and the Lord's Supper. And these are memorial ordinances. They are not sacraments of the church. I is individual soul liberty, that each Christian has the ability and the right to interpret Scripture as the Holy Spirit leads us. And each of us makes a personal decision of faith and repentance in Jesus Christ so that we can't be forced into any religious system. S is a saved church membership, that is a regenerated church membership. No one can become a member of the Lord's church unless he has personal faith in Christ, repentance from his sin and personal faith in Christ. And then finally, there is this last T, which does stand for the two offices of the church. Now, I'm taking a good deal of time to discuss the first office, the the office of the pastor, and that's due to the uh, extreme importance for the church. Uh, the scriptures give much deference to the office, indicated by what it has to say about the support of the pastor, the, the prayers that are to be offered for the pastor, the respect for the man that God puts into the office. And many of the things that I, that I preach on this subject in, in these messages are very personal in nature. But I don't want you to think that I'm preaching this subject in order to draw attention to myself or to seek some kind of, um, uh, just trying to build myself up. I mean, the purpose of doing this is not for that. Uh, and many of the things that I relate to are not for that purpose of building me up. And I, and I do hope that after 14 years of pastoring the church that, that you have the opinion that I wouldn't do that anyway. That's not the purpose. But the, the things are a little bit difficult to talk about. Some of them are because they are so personal. I'm the one that's in the office uh, but I don't intend to be the hero of every story, as many pastors do. Now, scriptures place rigid requirements upon the man. And we've just read those here in First Timothy chapter 3. And the church can't exist without a pastor, but the church doesn't do well without a pastor. That, that's the way that God has designed the church to function. And if the man who's standing in the pulpit is not God's man, and if he's not the person that the church believes is to be is God's man then the church is not going to do very well and I want you to understand that I don't think that that I'm personally important but God has as I said designed the church to operate in this way now Paul gave instructions remember we've used this verse several times um, that he gave instructions to Titus to ordain elders in every city and that was so wherever there is a a a place where a a church of the Lord Jesus Christ is located, that there would be good men in that place who take this office of the pastorate and lead the church through the way, uh, in this way that God has chosen for the church to be led. So the pastor is the man who does this. He's the one who has these important qualifications, and these qualifications must be observed to determine the one that God would have to lead you. There's this increased amount of respect when uh, the person is determined uh, 
It's clear that not every man in the church has the uh, qualifications to, to take this office upon him. And these qualifications are not only his personal qualifications, but they're also spiritual in nature. And the spirituality of that is indicated by the fact that God has gifted the man for the office uh, when he calls him. Now, we, we spend time on this, first of all, because this is something that is taught in God's Word. This is vital information. Just like other doctrines in the Scripture, the Bible spends time telling us about this. Uh, and the reason that this is preserved in the New Testament canon uh, because it's one of the doctrines of the faith, just like all the other doctrines that we teach and that we believe. Uh, whatever I say here does have a personal element to it. It's attached to it. But this is not a personal matter. This is for the good of all of us, that we understand what the pastor is supposed to do and the kind of man that he is supposed to be. So I preach these things to you because they're practical. You need to know them. You need to be able to pass them along to your children who at some point are going to be the ones who will lead this church or be members of this church and have the say here. And so a, a day is going to come when the church is going to have to make a selection of another pastor. I'm going to get old. I am already old, but I'm going to get older. And uh, I'm going to die. And uh, your children need to know who you're going to choose and the method of choosing someone else to be the pastor of the church. And I will say this, that I want to teach this and tell you what you should look for because I have a vested interest in who is the next pastor of the church. I'm interested in who that will be because I want to see the doctrines that we believe and have taught these past years to be continued in the church and not to, not to go by the wayside, but we continue in the doctrines that we've learned. Well, there are two areas of the topic that we've discussed thus far. Uh, these are the terms that are used for the office. We looked at that, pastor, elder, and bishop. All of those relate to the same office with a little bit of nuances and meaning uh, depending on the, the different aspects of the office. And here in our text in, in 1 Timothy chapter 3, the word bishop is used. And some translations use the word overseer. And so that just that's another indication that we have these different names for the office. Then secondly, we talked about the selection to the office. This is what we spent our time on um, last week. And that's the method by which the church obtains a pastor. That it begins with an inward call of the Holy Spirit. Then it proceeds to an outward call that's issued by the church. The church identifies a man who's qualified to take the position uh, a man who has demonstrated that he does in fact have an inward call. And then the church issues that outward call. And then the next thing that comes is the ordination of that man to the office. And the ordination is actually the election to the office. So the church decides who will become the pastor. Then we also considered another aspect of, of, this, of this call. And that is the restriction of it. That this is a call that's only issued to men. Only men can be pastors of churches. That's indicated by the language that we have in this chapter and also preliminary information that's given in chapter 2. And so if a woman says that she's called of God to pastor the church, then she may be called, but it's not by God. Uh, and I have no hesitation saying that that, that is, uh, comes from the father of lies, that it is satanic, that it is confusion, that it is against the created order. And Baptists have never supported the ordination of women to the office of pastor. Now, tonight we're going to take up our third observation. And 
I want to speak to you about the responsibilities of the office. We're just going to kind of get into it a little bit tonight. If you want to know why the pastor has to be very carefully considered, you need to understand how monumental are the responsibilities that have been given to him. A man who wants to be a pastor, the scripture says, desires a good work. But he also has to recognize that he must accept the consequences of that work. I mean, he has to fear God. Uh, He has to have a a great respect for the office because of the influence that this wields uh, among God's people. A bad pastor can involve himself in some very serious negative consequences. And we have an indication of this in John, uh, rather James chapter 3. And there's a serious precaution in, in, in this chapter that, that lets us know that God is very carefully watching what the pastor does. James wrote in James 3.1, My brethren, be not many masters, knowing that we shall receive the greater condemnation. Condemnation is a word that means judgment. There's greater judgment because of the greater responsibility. So no man who assumes the office of the pastor should take it lightly. And that'll help you to understand that I never want to approach the pulpit without having studied the text that I'm going to give you to make sure that I understand it so that I don't give you the wrong information. Now, pastors are the main teachers, of course, but every teacher in every class ought to have the same sense when he comes to handling the Word of God. There is a great responsibility in teaching people what God's Word says, and we need to respect that responsibility. And not only do we teach the Word, but we are to live by the Word. Uh, we're looked at in that way. For example, the, uh, the Scriptures comment on this in Romans 2.21 and also in Matthew chapter 7. In Romans, Paul said, Thou therefore which teachest another, teachest thou not thyself? Thou that preachest a man should not steal, dost thou steal? And in Matthew 7, Jesus said, Judge not that ye be not judged, for with what judgment ye judge, ye shall be judged. And with what measure ye meet, it shall be measured to you again. So the teacher is going to have his teachings turned back on him. You know, like the old saying go, when I, goes, when I point my finger at you, there are three that are pointing back at me. And I have to be aware that what I teach also affects me personally. Now, in James, what he was discussing in that third chapter was the use of the tongue. That speech wields much power. And so we have to be very careful about what we speak. Uh, this is especially true when we handle God's Word because the wrong information can cause some very serious problems. It has devastating consequences, whereas the right information has saving benefits. So I think you know which side of that you want to be on. We want to be very careful how we approach God's Word. Now, in Ephesians chapter 4, we learn some of the responsibilities of the pastor. There it says, And he gave some apostles, and some prophets, and some evangelists, and some pastors and teachers for the perfecting of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ. Here Paul says that the pastor is to perfect the saints. That means that he's to help bring them to maturity in the faith. And then it says he does the work of the ministry. That means there are various ministerial functions that the pastor performs. We'll get an opportunity, I hope, to talk about that at a little bit later time. And then it says that he edifies the body of Christ. That is, it is his work to strengthen the membership of the church. 
Uh, in one lesson I said that the church is made of living stones. That's what Peter said. The church is made of living stones. And part of the pastor's job is to polish those stones that make up the church. So let's talk a little bit about that this evening. What kind of work does the pastor do to polish the stones? What is his job? First, we would say the pastor's job is to instruct the church. I don't know what else the pastor would do that would be more important than this, that the pastor is the spiritual guide, and the information that he uses to guide comes from the Word of God. And so a pastor has to be a man who has learned the Scriptures. Uh, and we all have to do that to understand what it is that the Lord requires of us. So if you attend a church where you can't learn, then the pastor's failing you. He's cheating you. He's not giving you what you need that'll make you fruitful in your Christian life. I don't like to hear anything better than I do someone to go out after a sermon and say, well, Pastor, I, I learned something. And the amount that you learn, of course, is dependent upon the listener. There are some new Christians that come to church that every service is a learning experience. They go out with something new, something that they didn't know before, and uh, they may not always understand what they've heard, but with time, understanding comes, knowledge is added, and, and their understanding increases. But more seasoned Christians may not hear something new every time that you come to church, but what we do is that we learn how to better apply the Word of God. When we, we get deeper into the meaning, we have it more solidly embedded into our mind so that it becomes useful to us when we talk with others. Now, sometimes you think that you haven't learned anything at all. But then the Lord may put you into a situation where the very thing that you heard in church in that particular sermon is something that you can use to discuss with someone else. Uh, that the Lord has just opened up something that you heard and you can use that. And, and that happens many times in our services. I find it to be true in my own studies. That sometimes I'll study the Word of God and I have no intentions of, of sharing what I've learned until I get into the pulpit and come before this congregation. But then I find that the Lord involves me in a conversation with someone. And the text that I've just studied is the one that the Lord wants me to use to talk to that particular person. So the same thing can happen to you. So I've learned in my own experience that if I think things through, things that I've already heard, and I don't close my mind to things that I've already heard, that a text from words, God's Word begins to take on new meaning, that I can learn new applications of it. I can find it better matching up with other texts. And so it becomes commentary on another subject. Now, if you stay away from a service because maybe I have announced the subject, and I say, here's what I'm going to preach about, and you say, well, I've heard that before, so I don't need to go to that sermon. Well, you may have missed the thing that would be your biggest help. You, you may miss something, you'll gain something uh, if you have your mind opened in the preaching service. Now, if you're a long-time Christian like me, there's hardly a service that you'd ever be able to attend that you don't hear something that you've heard before. As I've told you another time, uh, sermons are repetitions of things, mostly of things that we already know. Church is a constant repetition of familiar things. And the Lord has designed his book to be that way. You can pick up a novel and read it, and you can remember a novel for 20 years. 
You don't have to go back to it. You don't need to read the story again. You know what it says. You can't do that with the Bible. You ever notice that? That if you don't constantly stay in the Bible, the material's not like it's just fresh every day. No, you forget things. You have to go back to those things. Even as a, as a, as a pastor, I get asked questions and I say, you know, I preached a sermon on that once. I studied that, but I sure don't remember what it was all about. And so I have to go back and review my own notes and look at it again because you just have to keep going back over and back over things. God designed it this way, so we just don't remember everything that we need to remember. Now, we notice in, in Ephesians chapter 4 that it does say that the pastor is to perfect the saints. And as I said, this means to bring believers to maturity in the faith. Well, that's going to necessitate that the pastor keep himself sharp in the Word. In most cases, it means that he'll have to stay a step ahead of the students that he teaches. For me, the form class is one of these instruments that God uses to, to keep me sharp. Uh, I don't suppose that there would be many of you that would want to get up in front of the church and have somebody ask you questions from just about anywhere in the Scriptures and be able to answer those questions. You know, sometimes I can't. Um, but that forces me into constant study of the Word of God to keep myself reading and studying to, to increase my understanding of the Scripture. And then if I might digress for just a moment, the Lord can actually take the Word from an inferior vessel, someone that may be less proficient in the Scriptures than you, and can, you can actually learn from it. Even though you might know more than the person who's trying to teach you, it works this way sometimes. I mean, there's some examples that I can think of. Um, uh, I, I'm not prone to, to get nervous when I get into the pulpit, uh, but I always feel a little bit nervous when I go back to Kentucky and I've got to preach in my, my sister's church when they asked me to preach there. Uh, in that church, the congregation is older, if you can believe that, older than ours. Uh, the congregation is older, and there are a lot of retired pastors and preachers that are members of that church. And I don't know what that church, why, but that just, the old preachers just seem to gravitate towards that church. And so when I preach there, I'm preaching to old men. And I'm talking about men that have much, much more experience than I have. And I remember preaching a sermon a few years ago, and I was wondering, how am I going to say anything that's helpful to these old preachers? And how am I going to say anything that, that's going to mean anything good to people that have heard the Word of God and heard it and heard it and heard it and very well trained in the Scripture? How are they going to be blessed by what I have to say? So I preached the sermon, and I let leave it in the Lord's hands, and you know, hope, hopefully the Lord uses that to bless people. But there was an old preacher in the, in the uh, congregation. He since died, and uh, I think at that time he was about probably 85, 86 years old. And he'd been a pastor for, oh, I think maybe 60 years or longer. And after I preached the message, he came up to me, and he said, that is the best sermon I have ever heard. And... I said, I, I, I couldn't believe, how could he tell me that's the best sermon that he ever heard? I mean, here's a man who's heard thousands and thousands of sermons. How can this be the best sermon that he ever heard? Well, it wasn't the best sermon that he ever heard. Uh, that night when I preached again, he came up to me and said, that was the best sermon I ever heard. <laughs> and so what you, do, what, what you do is you learn not to believe your own press about these things. So... Uh, but what I, you know, pride goes before destruction. The Bible does say that. 
So it wasn't the best sermon that he ever heard, but this is what I have learned about the Word of God and preaching to people that hear it over and over again, that the best sermon that you ever heard is the one that helps you when you need it, the one that helps you at the time that you need it. And so God knows exactly what you need. And when you skip a church service because it's something that you think you've heard before, that could be the exact encouragement and the conviction that God wants to give you. The Word is Always a blessing, even if at that exact moment you're not conscious of it. Now, don't mistake what I'm saying. I'm not saying you can be unconscious and receive something good from the Word. I'm not trying to encourage sleeping as if I had to. So we're not talking about that. You do have to listen. But my point is, you can get something from somebody that doesn't know as much as you do, if the Word of God is the focus. Now, another example comes from history. i got a couple of these. I think about stories... Uh, of men like John Owen. Uh, John Owen uh, was a man who loved to hear John Bunyan preach. I think everybody's, if you're not familiar with John Owen, uh, you, you are with John Bunyan. And Owen really loved to hear Bunyan preach. Now, Owen, John Owen, was by, is considered by many to be the, one of the greatest, if not the greatest theologian of all gospel ministers. I mean, he was a very deep, deep theologian. If you pick up a book that's written by John Owen... You'll read it, and then you'll reread it, and then you'll need to reread it, and then I'm not sure you're going to get everything that he intended for you to know. He's just a, he was just a very, very deep thinker. But as brilliant as John Owen was, he loved the simplicity of John Bunyan's preaching. Now, Bunyan, next to, standing up next to John Owen, was next to uneducated. But, but Owen loved to hear john bunyan preached because he had such a passion for preaching and there was a way that he could relate the word of god that was just special and owen was blessed by that now i'm not saying that john owen wasn't or rather that john bunyan wasn't uh, uh, capable of masterful theology because he was i mean you read the pilgrim's progress and you know the ability that john bunyan had to communicate and how he could uh, put these concepts of god's word in such a special way that he did that's the kind of thing that attracted john owen but um, there, there's, there's something that can be learned from, from people when, when you're, it doesn't matter who it is, when they're putting the emphasis on God's Word and giving truth. And then another example that I think of, and this one's kind of intriguing to me as well, uh, it's, it's a story about Spurgeon. Now, scarcely anybody that's ever done any studying hasn't heard of Spurgeon or read something that Spurgeon wrote. Uh, Spurgeon had an unparalleled gift for communication. Uh, when he was alive... Every sermon that he preached was printed and sent out and went around the world, literally, around the world. And preachers and teachers everywhere read Charles Spurgeon's sermons. So they were published weekly, and, and um, he became the most prolific preacher that the world has seen. And still today, his sermons are published more than any other person. Well, there was a night when Charles Spurgeon was... Uh, a night in London when, if I remember the story correctly, it was uh, a, a night of very foul weather. And Spurgeon was walking down one of the streets in London, and with that bad weather, he decided to duck into a little Methodist church. And there was a, uh, a Methodist layman, not the pastor of a church, just a Methodist layman, and he was preaching uh, to a very small congregation of people. And, and Spurgeon sort of ducked into the back of the church, nobody saw him he was sitting in the dark back there listening to the sermon and the man happened to be preaching one of charles spurgeon's sermons 
And Sermon lit, uh, Spurgeon listened to that. Then after the service was over, he went up to this layman and he said, said that was just a great sermon. And the Methodist layman recognized Spurgeon at that point and he said, but it's your sermon. Now you can imagine what it'd be like if you downloaded a sermon from the internet and you got up to preach it and the guy who wrote it sitting there in the congregation with you. But Spurgeon said, I've never been so blessed to hear my own words. And he wasn't being vain about that though. Because here, here's what he was getting at. That sometimes, and many times I think this may be true, that a preacher delivers a sermon for the benefit of the people. And a lot of times the sermon doesn't really sink down into us ourselves. And we can be blessed by what we hear. Now let me give you a testimony about that. Uh, I, uh, I, as I've told you many times, I pre prepare sermons you know, sometimes five or six weeks in advance. And I don't see the sermon again until the week before I get ready to preach it. And so in that week um, that that sermon's going to come up, I review the notes, I edit some things, look at them again, and often I forget exactly what I was going to say in the sermon, and then I'll begin to look at what I, the notes that I've taken down, and something different comes out of that. That I see something there that I didn't see before. And sometimes I'll change the emphasis in certain parts of the sermon because it struck me in a different way on a different day. Now, here's, my, here's the thing. If that happens to me with my own sermons, then I think that there may be things that you can get out of what I preach that I might not have intended. That you drew something out of it that was special for you, that helped you in a different way that I just might not have intended. I'm always amazed when Bob talks to me after the services, the kind of things that he gets out of my sermons. Guys certainly don't, didn't intend a lot of things that he thinks comes out of them. But... Um, you, you, just, you just learn these things that if you'll just come, if you'll just sit and listen, that God will bring something out of that sermon that you need. Now, all of this, of course, is to show you that it, it is the Holy Spirit that guides the instruction. The pastor is the one that has to preach, but it's the Holy Spirit that guides the message that you're given. And um, I'm very happy to take the, the blame for all sermons that fail, but all the ones that are successful, that's got to be the Holy Spirit. Because I can't do this by myself. I can't put these things together by myself. It has to be the Holy Spirit to guide us. So the pastor has to instruct, and these few examples show us that most of the time the pastor's learning is going to be above those that are in the crowd. Uh, but if a pastor can't do this, if he can't instruct on deeper doctrines of the faith, then you're being cheated. You're not going to mature by hearing a salvation message every Sunday. And you're not going to mature by hearing something about Christian standards every Sunday or about Christian working every Sunday. Now, I've said before that, that the church, our services, are not primarily for lost people. The church is for people that are saved. The lost are here mostly incidentally when they're here. And this is what we've find the church is for. The early church was attended mostly by saved people. And so we have to become come prepared to preach to saved people in order to perfect them in the Word of God. And so that means taking every part of the Word of God, declaring the whole counsel of the Word of God, so you get it cover to cover, every subject that there is in here. Now that takes time, 
It takes often attendance at church, and it takes a long ministry to do it. And I've been looking back over the numbers of books that I've preached through in 14 years as being pastor, and there aren't that many of them. We, we, we preach through entire books, but it's taken a long time to do these things, and you just got to stay with the ministry and, and stick with it and continue to learn. Now, we notice what the Apostle Paul said to the church at Thessalonica. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, he said, For what thanks can we render to God again for you, for all the joy wherewith we joy for your sakes before our God, night and day, praying exceedingly that we might see your face and might perfect that which is lacking in your faith. Now, there Paul says that he was anxious to correct the areas that they were lacking in faith. Well, what did he mean by that? You're lacking in faith. Well, obviously, he's not talking about saving faith. They can't be lacking in saving faith. Neither is he talking about elements of doubt that might have crept in and diminished their faith. But what he's speaking of here is faith as it represents the entirety, all of the doctrines of Christianity. There is more for the church to learn than saving faith. Faith has to go on to maturity so that we understand how God works. But there are many Christians and many pastors that don't spend time developing deeper doctrines of the faith and the doctrinal positions. And folks, that, quite frankly, is an epidemical problem among Baptist people. We don't produce scholars. We haven't produced scholars in our Bible colleges. In, in the last, I, I can't even think in the last hundred years, who we would call a real Bible scholar that's come out of our Baptist schools. Now, we can go back, uh, you know, a hundred years and look at the seminaries and things like that, and men who've come out of these seminaries, and they were deep, deep doctrinal men in the Word of God, but we just don't see that happening any longer. So Paul wrote letters to the churches, and, and his purpose in doing that was to increase their understanding of the faith in God's Word. And so he wrote letters like Romans and Galatians and Ephesians that are filled with these deep doctrinal truths. And Paul didn't back off of these deep doctrinal subjects because he expected that the people of God would understand them. That if they study them, they will understand them. But we don't find that in our churches today. You pull out Galatians and you go through Ephesians and you talk about Romans, you get people stumped on the doctrines that are there. There's very little understanding. And most Christians have no idea what Paul was saying in those books. And so when you bring up things like the doctrines of grace, you're greeted with either blank stares or outright hostility over it. So a pastor has to do this. He has to instruct in all the Word of God. And he needs to know the Word of God. So there aren't any areas that he's afraid to touch. And so he takes on all the controversial parts of it, just like he does the easier parts of it. And he does that to perfect others in the Word of God. So the pastor instructs the church. Secondly, his responsibility is to shepherd the church. Now, shepherding includes teaching, but it's broader in its scope. Oh, you can go to a Bible college and you can get instruction, and that's good. You can sit in a classroom with your pen in your hand, a textbook in your lap, and you can learn from your teacher and you can get academic principles of the Christian faith. A Christian college or a Christian night class can give you instruction in the Word of God, but what it doesn't do is it doesn't shepherd. The shepherd is the one who feeds the flock. And you remember, we learned that when we studied the terms. And uh, more than just feeding them the Word... The shepherd is also a part of their lives. 
Hiscox made this statement. He said, the details of his work, the work of a pastor, will be manifold. And while he should not assume too many duties or take responsibilities alien to his proper calling, he must not too hastily repulse those who repose confidence in him and whom he may be able in many ways to benefit by a variety of service. I think what he's trying to tell us is the pastor is to be a friend. He is to be a confidant to his flock. Now, quite frankly, the pastor is a professional. He has professional duties that require discretion. So if you come to the office, come to my office, and you need to discuss your problems, I promise you that your problems are not going to be announced in the bulletin for everybody to know. Now, obviously, if you have an issue that's sin and you refuse to repent of sin, at some point, that's going to have to be brought before the church. But when you come into the office to talk to me, your secrets are my secrets. Uh, They don't get out to other people. My wife doesn't know your secrets. Now, I love her, I respect her, and you should too, but my wife is not the pastor of the church. I know pastors and deacons that want to share everything with their wives. I don't. Because I don't think our wives need to be burdened with burdens that they shouldn't carry. Now, I want to read something to you that that kind of sounds like it came from the Dark Ages. Many pastors wouldn't say this out of obvious fear. Uh, But this was written by William MacDonald, who's not from the Dark Ages, but actually contemporary with us, having written this in 1995. He made a comment on 1 Peter 3.7. This is what 1 Peter 3.7 says. Likewise, ye husbands, dwell with them according to knowledge, speaking of the wives, of course, giving honor unto the wife as unto the weaker vessel, and as being heirs together of the grace of life, that your prayers be not hindered. Now, this is what MacDonald said about the passage. In this day of the women's liberation movement, the Bible might seem out of step with the times in speaking of women as the weaker vessel. But it's a simple fact of life that the average woman is weaker than the man physically. Also, generally speaking, she does not have the same power to control her emotions and is more frequently guided by emotional reactions than by rational, logical thought. The handling of deep theological problems is not characteristic her forte and in general she's more dependent than the man now he said that not me okay so let's (laughs) let's uh let's don't get upset at the wrong person here but you just take what 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 donald said here and you transpose it upon uh, this text in our subject tonight god does not gift women to shepherd the flock now my wife may come to me and she says what was that meeting about? Why does so-and-so want to talk to you? What, what did you talk to them about? And she's content to hear me say, I can't tell you that. I can't talk about that. I know that she can keep a secret. Oh, she has so many secrets on me, you better not let them out. But uh, she can keep a secret. But I'm not going to discuss these things with her. She doesn't need to be burdened with those burdens of the church that's the pastor's job not the pastor's wife's job so she's not going to know your secrets then the pastor is to be a modeler and i admit this i'm not a perfect model there are many many ways that i wish that i was better i admit my impatience i admit my exasperation with christians who won't do what they're supposed to do i often pray that the lord will make me more compassionate than i am i don't consider myself to be as compassionate as i should be And I don't want to fail in those areas. 
But I, I think that I can say in, in 14 years of pastoring that I have tried to be a friend and I've tried not to separate myself from, from you and to be unapproachable. I think there are pastors that are very aloof and pastors that put on airs. And I think there are some of them that require you to take your shoes off when you come into their presence because you're standing on holy ground and you're just too holy for them. And then I think there are pastors that misuse the Scriptures. For instance, this one in Psalm 105 that says, Touch not mine anointed, and do my prophets no harm. And that's a, that's a psalm, a verse of psalm that's used to, uh, uh, misused to support pastoral power as if the pastor is untouchable, that a pastor can't receive any kind of constru- uh, uh, correction. Well, pastors that are heaven-bent on maintaining control of everybody will try to counterbalance the New Testament where it says that we are not to be lords over the people by going back to the Old Testament to Psalm 105 and say, Touch not the Lord's anointed. Now, we have to be aware of when God is talking about the church and when he's not. The pastor is to be approachable. I mean, who wants a friend that you can't talk to? And who wants a, a pastor that makes you feel like you're an inferior bug that when you come into the office, you should wash his feet with your tears and that you're so thankful that you can be in his presence. A pastor needs to be a shepherd, somebody that's close to the flock. And I think that this also means that a pastor needs to know when not to intrude. I mean, there are times and there are situations when a pastor should not insert himself. Now, I think that a pastor needs to be a part of your spiritual life But you don't need me to be your mother. You don't need me to tell you every move that you that you that you can make. I I haven't done the pastor's job if after fourteen years that you can't make your own decisions about things. And when I became the pastor, there there were some some people that had this problem. Church members felt that they couldn't move unless they came and asked me about it. Uh, you know, you, you got to beat a path to the pastor's door over every little thing because you got to have an answer. So every decision is this traumatic thing that has to be done. Every detail has to be analyzed and scrutinized and filtered and strained and put through a spiritual mass spectrometer and examined with an electron microscope before you could ever make a decision. So you always had that steady path to the office door. And there were people in the church that didn't like it because I didn't fit that model. I don't think that you need to do that. Christians need to grow up. And if I can't provide for you a level of maturity after years of teaching, something is wrong. Now, new Christians, we understand. Uh, Much help is needed with new Christians. But with older Christians, either I'm not teaching you or not listening if, if if you don't know what to do. But a pastor has to shepherd. He's not a nursemaid. But I also want you to be aware that nothing that I've said prevents you from coming to me with a problem. You can come to me and you can speak to me as a friend. You can respect the office and still have a friend. So shepherd, as we learned before, that, that's the most intimate term for the office. You remember that? This is why the term is so popular. We don't use the term bishop very often. In, in the modern sense, that wasn't in the, in the New Testament times, but in the modern sense, <clears throat> the, the, the term bishop has a coldness attached to it. And so it's more preferable that people talk about their pastor, they talk about their shepherd, because that's closer, that's a more intimate connection, it's a more affectionate term. Now, let let me also say this, another word, that I know that there are some people that just tolerate me. 
Uh, there are people that love me to my face, but work against me behind the scenes. And uh, if you don't do it here, if you don't say something to somebody here, then you know there are times in people's homes that they've just become places of criticism. I understand that. Pastors have always lived with that difficulty. Uh, it happens all of the time. My best advice for somebody who does that is to repent. Because when you work against the pastor, you work against the church, and you work against the Word of God, and you work against yourself. It's not just me that you work against. Psalm 105 does not mean that there can't ever be criticisms of a pastor. But we also have to balance that with 1 Timothy chapter 5 that says we're not to treat these matters lightly, that we have to be very careful what we do. The pastor's not an enemy. The pastor is a friend. Paul said, am, am I your enemy? Because I tell you the truth. But here is where we find the biggest divisions in the church. The biggest divisions are over the leadership. Disagreements about leadership. And if we go back to the discussion that we had about the inward call, when the church agrees that there is an inward call, and the church says, this is the man that God wants to pastor us, then it becomes your duty to submit to that leadership and to support that leadership. Don't be trying to tear it down all the time. And if there is a problem, there's a right way to do that. The Bible gives a method of contesting the leadership. Touch not the Lord's anointed doesn't mean that nobody can correct the pastor, disagree with the pastor, but the Bible does give us a biblical method for this. And it's not to contest privately behind the pastor's back. And it's not to raise a, a group of people to come against the pastor. Now look at, look at 1 Timothy 5.19, and we have it on the screen, I think. Against an elder receive not an accusation, but before two or three witnesses. Them that sin rebuke before all, that others also may fear. So dealing with the pastor is not something that you do behind his back with others. If there's a beef, then it has to stand the scrutiny of witnesses and be brought before the church. Now, the Bible tells us this so that the pastor is protected against false accusations. There has to be some evidence. So if someone comes to you and tries to enlist you, with their complaints, then you tell them, shut up, unless you're willing to withstand the examination over the issue that you bring up. Now, there's one thing that I can confidently say, I hope, I hope this is true, that you're, you're not going to be able to bring a moral accusation against me. I'm pretty confident about that. Your accusations will be doctrinal ones. So, if that's what it is, be prepared. If you, want to, if you want to discuss these things and you have a disagreement, be prepared because I'm not a novice. Um, don't speak doctrinal differences with others. Start with me. Come and talk with me and I'm happy to sit in front of any witnesses to discuss the doctrines. I'm not perfect, but I can defend what I believe. And if you can't, then don't go behind my back with something that you're not willing to argue in front of me. And since we're just bearing it all here... Um, I, I promise there are going to be more issues that will come up as we uh, discuss this particular segment about the pastor. But let me say this, that, that 14 years ago, there were people that left the church because of disagreement. Now, it's not my purpose to bring up, uh, open up old wounds, but I will say that this, what happened then is instructive for us to learn how to handle different differences in the church. 
How, how do we approach those things? Well, one of these, I mean, I'll tell you what was done wrong, is that when people left the church, there was not one of them that came into the office to sit down with me to discuss the problem, discuss doctrine. Now, I did have the opportunity to track down one couple of the church, and I sat down with them and, and went into their living room, and I opened the Bible, and I said, well, here's what I'm teaching, and this is what the Scripture says. And I didn't get very far with them because they looked at what the Scripture said when they said to me, well, yes, that is what it says, but we don't believe that. Well, I can't help you in that case. Uh, I can't do anything with you if it comes down to this that you say, well, I'm just not going to believe what it says. And if you won't change, then keep quiet about it. Just don't then stay there and listen and learn, hopefully. If you can't defend it, just don't say, I don't believe the Bible. Now, folks, the Bible is all that I have. The Bible is all that I depend on. I'm a B because of the, I'm a Baptist because of the B in the Baptist acrostic. It's biblical authority, and that's the only place we're going to go to buy to the Bible. That's enough for tonight. I feel like I've been contentious with you, and I don't, really don't mean to be contentious. Uh, I, I just want to tell you the straight of it, and this is what a pastor is supposed to do. Um, there are, are hundreds of churches across the country that have these kinds of problems. I will say that we're in a, a situation in our church right now, although I sound like there's, maybe there's something going on, there's nothing going on. I, I don't know of anything that's going on. Uh, I'm just preparing us for whenever they do, that we know what to do, how to handle things, what's the proper way to do things, and we'll discuss a lot of these things as we go through this. So consider the pastor's responsibilities. They are, they are difficult responsibilities um, in their own right. They're hard enough to deal with without all the contentions that can be brought into it. So very seriously consider that. Then we'll come back next time, next week, and we'll talk a little bit more about this first, or last T, rather, in the Baptist acrostic. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the time that we spent together tonight. And um, it is difficult to talk about these things and um, things that... Not pleasant subjects sometimes, but they, they need to be taught. And, and the, people, the people of this church are going to face a time when another pastor will have to be chosen. And we need to, need to know what to do. We need to know the Word of God. And we need to have an honest approach to it and a godly approach to it. And it's put here for our learning. And so it's my responsibility to teach it. And I pray, Lord, you'd help me to do it in the right way. Bless our people. We're thankful for each and every one of them. And we give you the praise for it all. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Ronert Park, California. If you would like further information about our church, please feel free to call us at area code 707-584-7275 or write to us at Berean Baptist Church, 6298 Country Club Drive, Ronert Park, California, 94928. Additionally, you may visit us on the World Wide Web at www.bebaptist.org.